On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Amen. Father God, I thank you so much for Robin. I thank you for the blessing that he and Marilyn are to our congregation. And I just pray, God, that now you'll take everything he's prepared, all he's worked on in this passage of scripture, and that you will infuse him again with your spirit as he prepares to bring that word to us. I pray, God, that you will give us open ears and open hearts and open minds to hear you speaking to us through this word, and that you'll help us, Lord, as we go forward from here to apply it. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. One of the things that, um, that comes from being a pastor is that it puts you at the site of some of the great transitions of life. The joyful ones, like births and marriages, and the sad ones, like death, or as one of my Anglican friends likes to put it, the ministry of hatching, matching, and dispatching. <laughs> it was a little strange for me at the beginning when I became a pastor in 2003 in Canada, <clears throat> because I think at that point, the last Christian funeral I had been to had been like 20 years earlier. In the interim, I'd actually been to quite a number of Muslim funerals in Pakistan, where I was working, Meryl and I were working with Afghan refugees. And I actually had to consult with a more experienced um, pastor, a more experienced colleague, to make sure I got everything right. Uh, my first funeral as a pastor, I didn't want to actually you know, slip into something that was inappropriate. Because different societies deal with death in different ways. And we can see that in this passage. Because in Canada, you know, where I was pastoring for 10 years, um, when someone passes away, it's like the crowd kind of pairs down over time. So the body is taken to the funeral home and embalmed. And then people come to visit. Um, at the, you know, not at your home, at the, visit, at the funeral home, with the, which is a special place, and there's set times when people come to visit. Um, so a lot of people come to that. And then 
usually fewer people come to the actual funeral service, and that can be up to a week after the person dies. Fewer still go to the graveside. And once the deceased has been lowered into the grave, actually sometimes you don't even they wait until you leave before they do that, um, uh, people just get in their cars, go home. The immediate family has like a, a light meal with a few, few friends, and everybody just goes off to their own houses. That's very different from what we see in John 11. Because much like in the Middle East today, when someone died, they were buried within 24 hours. So when our passage starts, Lazarus has been in the grave for four days. But Martha and Mary's house is still full of people. And under normal circumstances, it would stay full of people for another three days. This is Shiva. One writer describes it like this. The first week of deep grief after a close relative's burial would be spent mourning in one's house, sitting on the floor while others brought food and sympathy. This custom, called Shiva for seven days, is continued in Jewish tradition. I'm, I'm, I'm very conscious that we have someone from the Jewish community sitting in front of me. I'm okay? I'm, I'm good? Okay, good. Uh, it's continued in Jewish tradition and is very helpful in releasing grief. Mourners abstain from adornment for the next three weeks and from common pleasures for the next year. So Jesus arrives in Bethany, where Martha and her family lived, right in the middle of the week of mourning. And it's important that he arrives actually on the fourth day, because by that time, everybody would have agreed that Lazarus was actually dead. That's because people believed that for the first three days, there was always the possibility of the person coming back to life. One rabbi writes, The whole strength of the morning is not until the third day. For three days long, the soul returns to the grave, thinking that it will return into the body. When, however, it sees that the color of its face has changed, then it goes away and leaves it. So it's no accident that Jesus arrives in the middle of the week of mourning. The day after, everyone has finally given up hope of Lazarus ever coming back to them. <clears throat> and that's important too, because John tells us that Jesus knew days earlier that Lazarus was sick. But he stayed where he was, on the other side of the Jordan. If he'd left when he heard the news, um, he might have arrived before Lazarus died. And he certainly would have arrived earlier in the week of mourning, which is what you'd expect from a good friend who was less than a week's, less, sorry, less than a day's walk from Lazarus's home. But he didn't. It's almost like he timed his arrival for this particular moment. So let's take a look and see what happens. Verse 20, it says, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. And that's what we expect, right? Because Martha's always the one who's out doing stuff, and Mary's the more reflective type. 
So it's not surprising that as soon as Martha hears that Jesus is on his way, she slips out of the house um, to go meet him. And we assume that they greeted, greeted each other, you know, did the, you know did, the, did the whole, you know, greeting one another. But then Martha gets right to the point in verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And clearly she and Mary have been talking about this. Because when Mary eventually joins them in verse 32, she says exactly the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Where were you, Jesus? We sent a message for you to come. And we know you got it days ago. How come you didn't come, how, how come, you didn't come when we called? We thought you cared about us. But now you're arriving four days late. Where were you? There's all kinds of emotions mixed up in that one sentence. Lord, if you had been here, our brother, my brother would not have died. There's sadness. My brother is dead. And disappointment. We had expected you to come, and you didn't. Confusion. Why didn't you come? Some anger. We thought we were friends, but you didn't come when we needed you. And if we're honest with ourselves, we have those kinds of thoughts as well. Philosophers might talk very calmly and detachedly about the problem of, you know, the problem of evil. But for people like us, people who believe in a good and loving God, when evil enters our world, it can feel like a betrayal. Like God, God has gone off and left us alone. But that's actually something we have in common with the great saints of the Bible. Half of the Psalms are about those kinds of thoughts. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 10, why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 74, talking about God's apparent unwillingness to act against the wicked. Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. Or as Eugene Peterson translates in the message, why don't you do something? How long are you going to sit there with your hands folded in your lap? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. <clears throat> if there's one thing the Bible teaches us, it's that it's okay to be honest with God about how you feel. I'll say that again. It's okay to be honest with God about how you feel. Despite that, there's a real temptation to say all the right things, the faith-filled words, even when we don't believe what's actually coming out of our mouths, excuse me. <clears throat> Even when in reality we're struggling to come to terms with the horrible thing that has come into our lives. Marilyn and I used to be part of a church that was part of the word faith movement. And we saw so many people struggling to reconcile 
what their theology said their lives should look like with the reality of their experience. Speaking positive confession while their lives and their worlds were falling apart around them. That's not faith. That's delusion. It's okay to be honest. You're not being disloyal to God. You know, he knows how you feel anyway. You're not fooling him, right? He knows what's going on inside you. You're not fooling him by mouthing all the right spiritual words. Tell him how you feel. That's what Martha did. But it's not all she did. She didn't stop there. And neither do most of the Psalms of complaint. There are exceptions. Psalm 88 ends with, and my only companion is darkness. And anyone who has struggled with depression can really resonate with that. Psalm 137 ends with a cry for revenge against the Babylonians, where someone would take the Babylonians' children and murder them like the Babylonians had murdered the Israelite children. But those are exceptions. In most of the Psalms of complaint, at some point, after the writer has vented his anger and his frustration or his bewilderment at God, he says... But, and the psalm turns a corner. And Martha does the same thing. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. What exactly was she saying? Was she asking Jesus to raise her brother from the dead? Perhaps, and there's many commentators who think that, but there is a problem with that idea. Because her response to Jesus in verse 24, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day, hardly suggests that she was waiting for an immediate miraculous intervention from Jesus. And when Jesus tells, says to open up their tomb, her horrified reaction is, it's going to smell. She's obviously you know, ex expecting Lazarus' body to have already started to decompose. So what does she mean when she says, but I know that even now God will give, whatever, give you whatever you ask? To be fair, she probably wasn't sure herself. Because when we're in a, the turmoil in the midst of deep emotional turmoil, we don't always think or speak in clear logical categories. And once again, if you look at the Psalms, once they turn that corner from complaining to faith, there's often a mix of, this is what I'd like you to do, God, and even if you don't do that, I'm still going to trust you. Because that's what faith is. Faith is trust. That's what the word means. Trusting God. Even when we don't understand what he's doing. Perhaps especially trusting God when we don't understand what he's doing. I think that's the error of those who think that they have to keep 
saying positive things in order to get God to do what they want him to do. Because when you realize that the word faith means trust, you realize that you can't have faith for something. You can only have faith in someone. And that's always possible. You can always trust someone, even when things go horribly wrong. And I think that's what's happening with Martha. She'd like to have her brother back. I mean, who wouldn't like to have a loved one return to them? But she also wants Jesus to know that even though she's upset by his late arrival, she still trusts him. I recently had a conversation with someone who was upset because um, so many people, at a, he'd been at a funeral of a relative, and lots of people had come up to him and said, I'm sorry for your loss. And the first couple of people, he thought that was really nice. But after you know, 20 or 30 people had said it to him, he actually got upset because everybody said the same thing. I tried to explain to him that at times of deep emotional feeling, we often use formulaic forms of words. Because we don't have any other way to express our sorrow. And we certainly don't want to, um, yeah, slip into saying something that would be inappropriate. For that matter, you know, we, we do the same at weddings and nobody complains. Nobody thinks of original things to say to people at weddings. Everybody says congratulations, right? I'm sorry for your loss is the equivalent at a funeral. It's a way of recognizing and validating someone's loss without the risk of saying something deeply inappropriate. And it's quite possible that your brother will rise again worked the same way amongst first century Jews. It was a way of recognizing someone's, a grieving person's loss and pointing to the hope of the resurrection as a way of comforting them. And that certainly seems to be the way that Martha heard it because she gives what sounds like the kind of answer a good Jewish sister should give, a statement of faith in the resurrection. She says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But so far, everything has been pretty normal. Martha's upset with Jesus because he came late, because he could have healed her, bro her brother, but she tr still trusts him despite, despite that. And Jesus responds with what could have been simply the standard thing that you say to a grieving person in the first century Jewish society. And Martha, in turn, makes the appropriate response. And then suddenly, everything changes. Because in verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who comes, sorry, anyone who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. What does he mean, I am the resurrection? The resurrection is an event, not a person. When people in the New Testament talk about the resurrection, they're talking about a time in the future when God will raise everyone from the dead. 
The righteous will be resurrected to eternal life, the wicked to eternal destruction. And just as an aside, the Bible does not teach that when we die, we go to be, be in heaven with God eternally. That is actually Greek Platonism. That's not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is that when we die, we enter what the old theologians called the intermediate state. We're still alive in the presence of God, but we don't have any bodies. At the resurrection, we're reunited with new bodies and live in the presence of God in a restored earth. <clears throat> That's what the Bible teaches. And that was what Martha just said she believes, that her brother would be resurrected, restored to life with a new body at the last day. And in response, Jesus says, I am the resurrection. What's he saying? He's saying that this future hope that Martha has, that she will see her brother again at the resurrection, that future hope is rooted in who Jesus is. Because without Jesus, there is no resurrection. Because it's only through his death on the cross and his own resurrection that the way is made open for anyone to be resurrected. See, it's perfectly possible to believe that there will be a resurrection of the righteous at the end of, the end of time and still not, not actually be part of it. Because the resurrection of the righteous is a resurrection of believers. And the way to be included is to believe in Jesus. That's what he's saying. He's saying the only way to be part of the resurrection is through me. He says, anyone who believes in me will live even though they die. <clears throat> Everybody dies. I was recently looking at a site about, um, to do with pensions and stuff. My Ikemet says I'm retired and um, part of my income comes from a small pension. So at one point, the, um, the writer of the page says something quite profound. He wrote, everyone dies, so it doesn't do any good worrying about, well, hello. <laughs> And the Holy Spirit appeared in the form of a dove. And don't you dare alight on me or do anything else to me. Hello. Actually, if you switch out the lights, switch out the lights. There he goes. No, almost. You get out of the way. He's trying. Okay. Um. Just a slight distraction here. That way, that way, that way, that way, that way. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, okay, okay, stay there. Stay there. Okay. Where was I? Everybody dies, <laughs> including you. <laughs> so it doesn't do any good worrying about it. But Jesus actually has something to add to that. He says, yes, everybody dies, but anyone who believes in me will live even though they die. Even though you die, and we all die, you will die, I will die. Even though we die, we will live. If we believe in Jesus. That's what he's saying. 
if we trust Jesus with our life, it's in safe hands. We will each lose our lives. It's a statistical certainty. No one gets off this rock alive. But even though we will each lose our life, it's not lost forever. Because Jesus will keep it safe for us. Martha believed that the resurrection would be an event. She didn't realize that the only way to be part of that event was through a, through a person, through Jesus. But we don't have to wait until we die. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. At the very beginning of John's gospel, John says about him, in him was life. He's talking about creation and basically saying that everything that lives on the earth has life because of the life that's in Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 says something similar about Jesus. He says, he is the radiance of the glory of God, an exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is God in the flesh, and God has life in himself. Everything else in the universe needs something else in order to live. We need oxygen and water and food and vitamins and minerals and the sun and a whole long stream of other things just to live. Take one of them away and we die. God needs nothing to live. He has life in himself. Jesus has life in himself. And he shares that life with those who believe. That's what he says in verse 26. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Clearly, he doesn't mean that our, their bodies won't cease to function but continue eternally. Like I said, everybody dies. What he's saying is that for those who believe in him, their lives change. Our lives change. When we put our trust in Jesus, he pours his kind of kingdom life into us, into our lives. So that when our bodies eventually, eventually wear out, we will continue to live that kind of life. That's what's behind Paul's dilemma in Philippians 1, 20 and 24. He writes, I eagerly expect and hope that I will no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. He's not afraid of death, because he knows that he will be with the Lord. And the fellowship that he has now will simply get deeper and stronger when he dies. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. That means there will never be a time when they're not in God's presence. If we're living in God's presence now by faith, we will simply switch to living in his presence by sight. There's a wonderful line, that where my faith will be my eyes, right? At the end of one of the lines of the song we just sung. Do you believe this? 
Do you believe this? That's Jesus' question to Martha. That's also his question to us this morning. Do we, do I, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Do we believe that if we trust him with our lives, then what happens to us here on earth is actually secondary? Do we believe that, as Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain? Can we say with Martha, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God? If we can, then death really holds no power over us. We're no longer counted among what Hebrews 2.15 describes as those who all their lives have been held by, in slavery by their fear of death. If we believe that Jesus is a resurrection and the life, then that no longer describes us. We've been set free. We are free to live for him and die for him. And it really doesn't make much difference. Lazarus' actual resurrection isn't part of our passage this morning. Uh, my focus has been on Jesus' words, I am the resurrection and the life. But as I prepared this message this week, um, I was acutely aware of Nilifer's condition. For those of you who are visiting, uh, a member of our congregation was flying into Istanbul at the end of December and suffered an aneurysm and has been in a deep coma ever since. And I really want to commend this congregation. I want to commend all of you for the way in which you have supported Nilifer and Jim through this last month in prayer, in being with, being with Jim up in uh, Istanbul as, she, as he um, was just sitting with Nilifer every day, helping financially so that he could stay there. I also want to confess that I struggle to know how to pray. Like Martha with Lazarus, each of us would dearly love to have Nilefer back with us. And Jesus had compassion on Martha and restored Lazarus to life. And we pray that God will have compassion on Jim and restore his beloved wife to him. But I do want to point out that when God does things like that, it's out of compassion for those who are left, not for those who have gone. So I want to ask you to join me in calling on the one who is the resurrection and the life, and the one who is able to do more than we ask or think, and ask God to do his will in Nilifer's life. Because really, when we pray for someone in her condition, when we pray for her to be restored to us, oh, he left. 
when we pray for her to be restored to us, which is what we'd all like to see happen, we're not so much praying for a healing. Somebody in that state of coma is much closer to praying for a resurrection. That's the reality. But if we believe, truly believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, then regardless of what happens, Nilefer has put her trust in Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. And that means that whether she is restored to us or not, her life is safe in God's hands. So as we pray for her, and I want to actually offer, take this moment to spend some time praying specifically for Nilefer. And I'm going to invite, you know, as, as, I, as I open in prayer, I'm going to invite people from the congregation, if you want to pray for Nilefer, please, let's take some time to pray for her. We've just talked about Jesus being the resurrection and the life. Let's take some time to pray for Nilefer. It's been a month, more than a month, since she went into a coma. Which means, it's, you know, medically, the odds against her awakening just keep climbing. But God is able to do miracles. We believe that, right? So let's just take some time to pray for her. Actually, Dindi, would you close? I'll open in prayer if you would close when people are finished. Thanks. Lord Jesus, you are the resurrection and the life. Like Martha, Lord, we believe that. Like Martha, Lord, we are bereft. We have... Nilifer has not passed away, but she has lost to us in a coma. So, Lord, like Martha, we say, we know that you can do all things. All things are granted to you. And Lord, we lift up our beloved sister to you. And Lord, ask, and ask, Lord, that you would restore her to us. Amen.